Welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Rob Pickles, here with Trevor Connor. Cycling events are starting to appear on the calendar again, but in many places, they look a bit different than they did before. Gravel has exploded, and we're seeing more people racing, including high-level pros, than ever before. Gravel events can be easier to organize, get far more participants, and offer something to both the racer looking for a result and the rider looking for an adventure. As our guests today point out, at least in North America, any young rider looking to go pro is going to have to race gravel at some point to get noticed. So today, we're going to talk with two Grand Tour level pros who have become gravel racers later in their careers and discuss the ins and outs of gravel racing. Our focus is on the strategy and how it's different from other forms of racing, but we'll also discuss weather, fueling, the best gear, and, wait for it, sauna hats. Joining us today are Alex Howes, the 2019 U.S. National Road Champion and a professional with the EF Education Easy Post team, and retired pro Kiel Reinen, who now races gravel on the Trek Driftless team. Along with our two main guests, we'll also hear from physiologist and coach Jared Berg. So, put your knobby tires on, just not too knobby, and let's make you fast. Bunking on race day sucks, and we've all been there. Having the proper nutrition is essential for you to perform at your optimal level. Don't wait until the last minute to think about race day nutrition. Now is the time. Our race day nutrition plan will help you create a unique eating and drinking strategy that focuses on the way your body burns fuel so that you never bonk again. Today's fuel is tomorrow's win. Get your race day nutrition plan now at fasttalklabs.com. Well, this is going to be a fun episode, I think, today, Rob, because we've got, what did you call them? Two washed up? Washed up pros do gravel, man. It's what everybody's doing right now. Way to welcome our guests. So I have full respect. These are guys I raced with or watched them ride away from me in a few races. So we have with us today Alex Howes and Kiel Reisden. So welcome, guys. Hey. Yeah, thanks. thanks for having us. Yeah. I didn't know I was washed up. I know Keel's washed up. <laughs> well, you're, you're washing babies. So I think that that means you're washed up as a pro rider, but that just means I am not washed up. I am <laughs> filthy. I am filthy. <laughs> so Currently in need of bath. <laughs> well, hey guys, I'm, I'm super happy to have you here because of this. You both have experience in the pro Peloton. You have experience mountain biking. You have experience gravel racing. You might even have experience on the track. So I love that you have this really wide-ranging experience. I think that's really going to play into our conversation today. And today what we're talking about is strategy for gravel racing. I'm sure you guys have noticed this as well, but it seems like lately road cycling is becoming a little less common. We're not seeing as many stage races. We're not seeing as many single-day races, but it seems like Gravel racing is on a rise. There are more and more gravel races. I think organizers love putting them together. People seem to enjoy them. So this is becoming a bigger and bigger part of the cycling world. I think there's numerous reasons why that's occurring. For one, just looking from a promoter perspective, it's a much easier event to put on. You know, it's based on mass participation. You're not looking to close major roads. You're, you don't need the same permitting, the same number of police. 
it's not the same Herculean task that putting on a, a road event is. And then on top of that, you have more and more people interested in this sort of version. I think it's it's more accessible for people. They're more willing to try it. It doesn't have as high of a bar of entry as, as road cycling can sometimes feel. Now, you guys might have a tainted perspective on this being pros, but how do you feel kind of about the proification, if that's a word, you know, of riders like yourself coming into this that was otherwise an amateur event previously, you know, that was about fun and everything else? Do you see gravel racing becoming more, quote unquote, professional, more organized? Do you ever see teamwork? You know, what, what's the future of gravel a couple of years from now? The future of gravel. The future of gravel. Yeah, I don't think anybody really knows what that looks like. I don't know. It's tough because a lot of people are like, oh, you, you know, you guys are ruining gravel and, you know, I should stay on the road or just quit cycling altogether and get fat like all the other old pros. And I don't know. To me, it's sort of like, I love racing in the US, like just period. All my best results have come in the US. And I think a lot of that just comes from emotionally just really being in it when I'm here. And at the moment, there's nothing else to really do in the U.S. And that, you know, like if you want to race in the U.S., you have to have knobs on your tires, you know, like you got to get dirty because as you say, you know, like road racing is, is kind of fading away. You know, there's no tour, Utah, Colorado, California, you know, name your major road stage race. Like those are all gone. So to race here in the States, like it's gravel or nothing. On that, do you think that the level of competition now in gravel racing is on par with what you used to see on the road in Tour of Utah and these other bigger races? It's a variation on that, right? Like to Alex's point, because this is what's available now, it's not just, you know, ex-World Tour riders coming back that is is sort of raising the bar of gravel racing. You also you have to think about the young kids who are aspiring to be professional racers where are they going to go race? This is their option. You know, when Alex and I were young, 20 something, you know, early twenties, there were 10 good continental teams that many guys made their career on in the U S and there were races every month, all spring and summer long that they could go to. There were high level races, most of those events and none of those teams exist anymore. And so for people who are, you know, not 18 and going straight to the world tour, this is sort of the, the only stepping stone left. And so they're, they're coming in to gravel with, that sort of level of commitment that they would have otherwise maybe put towards the road. So why don't we shift gears a little bit and tell us a little bit about what gravel racing is about. What makes it unique? What is a gravel race? How is it different from other forms of racing? Yeah, I mean, with gravel, it's sort of this weird hybrid between road and mountain. There's definitely a handling aspect. There's, you know, group dynamics that you'd see in the road, but it's not the same sort of fast charging peloton that you would normally see when i think of like a group riding over gravel it's generally you know one to two lines of riders you know like you're, you're kind of like cruising along on the double track when i say cruising i mean sometimes you're like really flying but you know you're on a double track versus being eight ten wide where you would be in a peloton on a major road so it makes for a different drafting dynamic but it is also similar to the road, more similar to the road, I think, in that the speeds are higher and you have a large peloton of riders, which you can, you know, usually work with to an extent. So it's not quite the same sort of time trial sort of effort that you would see on a mountain bike. And the bike itself is more like a road bike. I, I personally would say it's a cross bike. And, and here's where you might argue with me, but I actually once asked the tech editor at Velo News 
what is the difference between a cross bike and a gravel bike? And he paused for a very long time before he could give me an answer. That, yeah, that's why, I mean, that's why you don't have him on the podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> Geometry is probably the simple answer. Also, you know, cross bikes, at least racing UCI races, you know, they're limited on tire size. So those frames are not built to accommodate whopping big 650B 40 plus C tires. That said, we are talking about nuances. I tend to think of the gravel races as having a lot of similarity to road races, but everything's in slow motion. Everything, you know, the attacks, the sort of pack dynamics, sprints, everything is happening at, you know, half the speed that it would on the road. And so that changes things. Plus, you know, we don't have a setup where everyone has, is on a team of eight riders. And, and that means that tactically the races are less predictable. So what is the typical length for a gravel race? Are these similar to a road or a mountain bike race? Are they longer or does it really vary? I think in general, they're, they're significantly longer. You know, Unbound is like the Unbound 200 is the one that everybody looks at. And that's a bit of an outlier in that it is probably about double what you would see in your, your sort of average gravel race. But even, you know, a hundred mile gravel race, I mean, that's, that's a huge effort. You know, when you think like, a lot of weekend road races that people were doing, you know, five, 10 years ago, you know, those would be, I don't know, 40, 50 miles. And like, that's a relatively long road race for a lot of people, you know, and it'd take them, I don't know, two, maybe three hours. These gravel races, it's like hundred mile gravel race over tough terrain. You know, we're talking seven hour race. I mean, that's starting to get push towards what you, what you would do in like an Ironman, maybe not quite that far, but yeah, it's, they're long, they're hard. Yeah. And on the flip side of that, I don't know of any gravel crits. Does that even exist aside from like maybe a, a short track mountain bike race is probably the, the closest thing to a, a criterium maybe. Yeah. I've, I haven't heard <laughs> that, of any, maybe we should, maybe we should make one. <laughs> I think that's the thing. Here we that go. Could be our, that could be our thing, Keel. You and me, that's where we, like, uh, we shine. We have crits. to make our own race. Yeah. yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't hurt my feelings if bike handling played a little more of a role in these results. The other thing too to go back for a second in, in the the distance of these races is everyone who's kind of getting into the sport or relatively new to the sport they they always talk in distances, and something that we understood as as pros was you know, time is kind of the more relevant yes. number, yeah. and so there were plenty of Grand Tour stages we did that were between 100 and 150 miles, which is a, a typical gravel race length, but we're doing them now at a fraction of the speed. And so these efforts, like Alex said, are, are seven plus hours, you know, maybe for the weekend warrior, it's 10 to 12 hours. And that's completely different than 150 mile stage of the Vuelta where we might've finished in five and a half hours. You know, and that's one of the differences there too, Keel, that you're pointing out is amateurs and pros are doing the same course at the same time, right? I think in some of these events, maybe there's different options for length, but if you want to go out and do that 150 mile, you know, event length, you're out there with everyone. It could be their first bike race or their hundredth bike race that it's a commingled pack. And I think that that's been really interesting. Well, this is something that I noticed in those multi-day mountain bike races that you also see in the gravel races. In a strange way, they are harder for the amateur than they are for the pro. Oh, 100%. Like my brother did the the Trans Rockies and you know, he was taking six, seven hours a day. So he had less time to recover. Those days were beating him up. I mean, he was going hard for him for seven hours. Pros were completing it in three hours. So yeah. they had much more time to recover. And it's the same thing here. If you're taking 12 hours to do this ride and you're going as hard as you can, that's a huge day. 
Yeah, I think we're also getting towards the upper end of the threshold of what's quote unquote raceable, like hmm. unbound gravel. I mean, seven hours is a really long time to race. That's this past weekend. That's that's kind of roughly what the finishing time was. It's really on the limit. An unbound sort of just pushes past that limit. Can even a professional level rider race for 10 hours or are you just out there riding at that point? Yeah, it's a race of attrition almost more yep. than it's not who can go fastest. It's who can kind of go slowest for the longest amount of time. <laughs> Gravel racing does have different demands on our bodies from other types of cycling. Let's hear from physiologist Jared Berg on what that means. From my experience working with athletes who are cyclists and doing the crits or whether it's a time trial and such, their gravel is a different, different beast. It takes that athlete who has just a, you know, really good economy in their physiology. They can get pretty good power. They're really good at using those long endurance capacity, slow twitch muscle fibers. They can metabolize fat awesome. They can do a lot with uh, fairly low lactate. You know, from my thought, it's not going to be as punchy as a road race or a crit. So do you need that high end capacity? No. Does it mean you need to skip that high end training? No. But it does mean that um, that in that gravel race, you know, you don't need that beautiful power profile where you have a good 10 second burst, minute, you know, flyer power. And then also the VO2 max, you're probably great with that. You have a good 60 minute functional threshold or, you know, you can go really hard for 60 minutes is going to be beneficial. And then also being able to back off just a touch from there and, and stretch it out for a few hours, which is going to tap into that uh, good fat burning metabolism. So yeah, that really brings us to what this episode is about, which is talking about the strategy of gravel racing. And when you're talking about seven, eight, nine hours of racing, you know, me, I wouldn't care what anybody else was doing. I would just try to go my own pace and survive. So that you mentioned earlier, though, that you, you do use the Peloton. So is this like road racing? Is there a Peloton? Is there a group dynamics? Or is this a little more like mountain biking where you're just going your own pace? You absolutely need to use the Peloton. I mean, that, that goes for, you know, pros and people just trying to finish alike. You know, because these efforts and races are so long, the more help you can get, the better. And it is kind of a beautiful thing early on in these races that you have everybody kind of mixed in together and that people that aren't really at the same level can benefit from a, you know, a large group of 500 or so riders. It can be a little hectic. I'm not going to deny that. But being sucked along by that big group early on really can help a lot. But at the same time, you really do need to kind of keep an eye on, on what you're doing. Make sure you're not overreaching and going, you're not doing you know, a threshold effort for the first hour just so you can save five minutes by sitting in the Peloton there. So it is, it is a bit of a balancing act. Also, the amount that you're saving is a lower percentage than on the road. You know, you may be in a group getting some draft, you know, especially if it's a headwind sector or a smoother gravel sector. But we're not talking about the same percentages that we are on the road. First of all, the overall speed is lower and the distance between riders is sort of inherently a bit larger as well, because you, you need to be able to see what's going on in front of your wheel. You can't be a couple centimeters from the rider in front of you. And so, you know, every inch that you drop back behind that rider to see the obstacles that are, are approaching you know, is a little bit less draft that you're, you're going to benefit from. Yeah, I think that that's an interesting point. I had an interesting experience at Belgian Waffle Ride a few years back where, um, you know, a guy that I know, really similar fitness to me, uh, we were both in the event together. 
And I ended up hooking up with a great group and was in that group for most of the day. And I finished, gosh, an hour and a half at least ahead of, you know, my friend. He was like, how did you finish so far ahead of me? I was like, oh, just I'm drafting off this group the whole time. He's like, man, I rode by myself the whole time. I didn't ride with anybody. You know, and, and that's that's BWR. Maybe because of the road sections, there's a, a faster speed and the drafting plays a little bit more into it. You know, can you guys talk about the range of terrain that's out there, right? We have Unbound, which is, as far as I know, I've never done it, but it's it's full gravel the whole time. It's maybe some chunky gravel. You have some other races like what Rock Cobbler, I think, in California that has like some single track, you know, but then you have, say, Boulder Roubaix, which is technically a gravel roads that we would all ride our gravel bike on, but it's really a road race. How does that spectrum of terrain play into the tactics? Are you behaving differently on something that's really fast and smooth than you are something that's maybe chunky or more single tracky? Definitely. There's also, that's part of the fun of, of this is there's a lot of choices to make, you know, when it comes to equipment, gearing, tires, pressure, all those sort of different courses lend themselves to different setups. And I, I think one of the things that people enjoy and connect on at these events is dialing in those setups. And, you know, there's so much tactically that changes during the ride, right? Like if you have a mechanical in the first 10 miles, that's really different than having a mechanical in the last 10 miles. I think for the most part, you know, at some point during the day, you are going to be riding alone and, and making sure that like, you know, sort of roughly the terrain that you're getting into to meter that effort is super important. I haven't done any of these really climbing heavy high altitude gravel races yet, but I think that's going to be a whole different animal than something like last weekend that, yeah, there's, you know, if you ride for 150 miles, you're accumulating plenty of elevation gain, but it's coming in short bursts and this average speed is above 20 miles an hour. Yeah, I mean, just to echo what Keel says, I mean, it's funny, lumping all of gravel together is <laughs> kind of mistake number one that I think people make because there's so much variety there. There's courses out there that like myself personally, like I'd probably be pretty useless on. I mean, don't tell anybody, but you know, Unbound is not my course. But you know, then you get to something like SBT where I can run tires that are smaller than everybody else and it's relatively climbing heavy and it's at altitude and it's like totally, totally, totally different ball game. So yeah, trying to dial in the, the equipment for every race is, uh, I mean, that's, that's step one. And honestly, it's, it's one of the bigger steps to make. I did a local event here a couple of weeks back where there was, there was at least an hour and a half, if not more, of hike a bike. Oof. You know, like the, the spectrum is huge and that's, and that's part of the appeal, right? I like, I, that was one of my favorite events of the year so far. I really enjoyed it because it was, it was different. It was out of the box. Because you didn't but, have to ride your bike as much. You just have to walk, <laughs> right? That's right. <laughs> my specialty, <laughs> carrying, carrying the equivalent of two children. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go back to what you were talking about before. What are some of the equipment considerations? What are you going to look for in the race and, and how is that going to impact what equipment you choose to use? I mean, I would say that the two biggest choices to make for any course are probably tires and gearing. You know, you need like the right width tires, something that you need more traction. Do you need quicker rolling resistance, less rolling resistance, higher volume, lower volume, the weight of the tires makes a pretty big difference. I mean, if you look at, you know, like a relatively beefy, chunky tire versus like something quite a bit faster, weight wise, it can be the difference between a, a training wheel and a, a race wheel which is, you know, anybody that's 
ridden on a crappy set of training wheels versus a nice set of race wheels and tries to go up a hill. I mean, you know, that's, that's a big difference. Yeah. <laughs> and then gearing is, is the next big one in my mind. If you don't have the right gears, you're either going to be blown out the back, going down a hill, or you're going to be keel running it when you're going up the hill, you know, walking, walking away <laughs> or paper boy. Or, I mean, there's, there's no paper boy when it's a single, single track. I mean, that's the other thing, <laughs> you know, if you, on a, you know, a lot of the tough climbs and a number of these gravel races. Yeah. If it's a nice gravel road, you know, relatively wide open, you might have the option to do a little paper boy, but I mean, in so many of these events and um, many of the climbs, there's, there's one line. And if you don't have the gear to push up that one line, then you're the jerk holding everybody else up behind you as you're walking up it. And strategy wise, you got to get to the front of that line so that you're holding everybody up, you know, when you get to it. So, you know, pro tip for everyone out there. That's right. That way you have a group of highly motivated, ferocious people to uh, ride with afterwards. Well, when they throw all their ride food at you, you know, that you're going to have plenty to eat and then they're going to be bonking. So it just plays into the strategy. That is every mountain bike race I've ever done. I pass everybody on the climb and then they all yell at me on the descent. There you go. Yeah, it's quick step in the classics. Perfect. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. I think that the other part of the, the equipment choice question is what kind of experience do you want to have? Right. Like if you wanna if you wanna have the fastest, best, you know, record you've ever set and um, just see how how quick you can do it. You know, that's a really different equipment setup than, Hey, I want to ride with my friends and I don't want to spend a bunch of time on the side of the road, fixing flats. And, you know, I want to take a low risk approach. I want to not have sore shoulders and triceps at the end of the day, as a participant in these events, there is sort of a, a choose your own experience or adventure component, which is again, some of the appeal for people. Yeah, I think that that's a really great point. Like you said, over half the field is probably out there just for the experience, the fun, the completion. Yeah. You know, oftentimes our conversation is more geared around eking out your best performance, your fastest finish. But uh, you're entirely right that uh, there's probably a lot of people that would otherwise want to choose even higher volume tires that are a little bit more durable and uh, a bike that has a little bit more shock absorption as opposed to just being the lightest, stiffest, most aero thing out there. Well, that's where a gravel race is is more like a grand fondo. You yep. have a certain percentage who are there to race and get a result. And then you have a, a larger percentage that are just there to finish and have the experience. Yep. Now, something that's kind of an experience for everyone is going to be weather, right? Unless you're out there a lot longer than someone else, everybody's going to be experiencing the same weather. And you know, Keel, you were telling us about racing down in Texas this past week. How is weather and sort of those intangibles affecting the strategy that you have? Yeah. So this past weekend, you know, it was pretty extreme. It was around 100 degrees was the high during the race. And so it really tempered the ability of, of riders to jump off the front and, and make a solo effort of it. Everything's already sort of in slow motion compared to a road race the heat that we experienced slowed everything down even more. And one of the cool things about this past weekend was the the promoter, the organizer of the event implemented a, a mandatory two minute stop at the two big checkpoints. And, you know, I think it was a bit of an insurance policy to make sure that no one did anything stupid. You know, you, you want to make sure riders are hydrating because it can be really dangerous when you get to those temperatures to be out there that long and not have enough water. But it, it also meant that we, as the riders, sort of strategized our, our race around that, you know, like when, when water was plenty, you could take more risk. And when it was not, 
you know, you had to you meter your effort a little bit more. And I thought it was interesting that the heat sort of, it made everyone timid in the beginning because they knew it was coming. And then by the time it arrived, it took enough of a toll that no one was able to make sort of the difference towards the end of the race. I shouldn't say no one, but it got a lot harder. And the heat aspect in gravel is pretty unique, right? Because we're talking about races that are a long distance. For the most part, you're relatively self-supported out there. It's not like you have an aid station as often as you would like to have it. There are no team cars. Nobody's handing up bottles to you. So you're carrying. So you have to optimize how much weight do I want to carry with my hydration needs. You know, and, and we know that over those long distances, that heat can really weigh on you. It almost seems like heat is going to be more important of a factor for gravel than it is for something like road or for mountain bike, which mountain bike generally, you know, cross-country races are going to be shorter than what you're doing in gravel. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, like you say, there's only so many aid stations out there in these long races. If the lights go out, you have very few resources to sort of get the get the ship back on track. You know, if you if you run out of water or you overheat, oof, it's <laughs> I can tell you from many personal experiences, I mean, you know, most recent one probably being Belgium waffle ride uh, a couple of weeks ago, not having enough water at the wrong time can absolutely turn your day upside down. Yeah. And then, you know, the location we're talking about a lot of these races in Kansas, not many trees, you're not getting a lot of shade or anything. And, you know, Alex, as you were just talking, the other thing I thought of too, we've talked about speed and how speed is lower in gravel. So you're going to actually be getting less cooling, say on a, a gravel at 15 miles an hour than on a road bike at 25 miles an hour. So yeah, it seems like a big deal. Yeah. And that's, that's why I don't like gravel. <sighs> that's why you, <laughs> that's why you love gravel. That's why I love gravel. That's why I love gravel. No, it's, it's, it's a big deal. And it's difficult to train for that, particularly for somebody, you know, coming from cold weather, like, you know, my Pacific Northwest <laughs> yeah, in, right, in yeah. the mountains. I haven't gone through the trouble of building my own personal sauna like Keel has. It's a health center. Yeah. The wellness center. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely things that you can do to sort of help improve your, your heat adaptation. I'm sure you guys have talked about that at, at length on, on this particular podcast, but it's worth doing. I always tell people, you know, if you can't go out and, you know, get the miles in and, you know, get the proper training in, at least make yourself hot. <laughs> I have taken that advice to yeah. heart. So that's, that's what Keel does. And it, he got third. He was the best American last weekend. <laughs> there, there you go. All because of your time in the sauna? Well, I, I recently invested in a sauna hat. And I think that's really upped my game. If you're limited on training time, the sauna hat is a must. You said a sauna hat, yeah, I was right? going to say, I thought I knew everything. What is a sauna hat? Is it what it sounds like? Is yeah, like, like imagine... Wool a, hats that you like soak before you get in there? Yeah, but it's it's better than that because instead of looking like a hat, it looks more like a cartoonish mushroom top, like mushroom cap. And then they're often embroidered and they're, you know, traditionally from you know, like areas like Ukraine that like, I don't speak Ukrainian. So I don't know. I don't know what's embroidered on there. There's a picture of a barrel and a bunch of letters that I, you know, I can't decipher. It probably says loser on it for all I know. But the idea is to keep a pocket of air above your head so that the hat has to have this kind of like tall peak to it to trap that air. And it's shockingly effective. I am shockingly surprised. Prize. We uh, are looking at pictures of this right now. <laughs> what, is, what is it supposed to do? Is it? It's, it's so you like don't catch your head on fire, but you can like totally light your body on fire. Is it? Sort yeah, of, like the, the idea like is that, insulating, right? 
Right. It's insulating. Like your, your head is going to overheat before your body in a sauna. Part of that is because your head's more sensitive, but part of it's also because it's the, the thing that's highest up in the sauna. Uh-huh. And, and because that, that temperature is higher up there, you know, it's experiencing a different temperature than your, your legs. So I think it's mostly about making an effort to kind of even the, the heat that your body's experiencing. So you put like a Ukrainian wool beer cooler on your head to get in the sauna. Yeah. And it looks about as cool as you would expect. You could keep a smoothie under that thing, you know, that'll keep you cool. You could, (laughs) you could take it down, take a sip every once in a while, put it back up there. You could also just train. That's an option. You could, but you could do that. (laughs) Less fun. (laughs) What about the other end of the spectrum here? We're talking a lot about heat and and how that's playing into the strategy and, and how it's maybe affecting the pack dynamics, but you know, what do you, what if you guys show up to a race that's cold or what if you show up to a race that's rainy? Are you going to go out and, and race differently or are you going to kind of attack it the same way that you normally would? It does turn out that shearing off your rear derailleur will change the dynamic <laughs> of the race for you. It pro- But then you get running, which apparently is a good thing. It's an option. You you actually, <laughs> hold on. What race was that? Didn't you run something absurd in, in a race, like 20 miles or something or, or, or 100 miles? I don't remember. I believe it was it was roughly 18 miles at Unbound last year because it was the only option. <laughs> <laughs> Literally stuck in the middle of Kansas. Yeah, I mean, there's not there's not a lot out there. Like, I think people underestimate kind of how remote some of these races can be. And if you're out there at the right time, you might see you know Segway and generally it's Jeeps. So like in Unbound, it's a local Jeep Jeep club that volunteers to kind of go out there and collect bodies and. <laughs> It's cool. You know, like it's a, it's an awesome volunteer effort from them. I obviously am very thankful that they do it because they saved my butt. But if you're not near one of those Jeeps, when you have a catastrophic failure, you can sit and wait and hope that one comes along or you can kind of keep moving. And, you know, a lot of folks, especially the, you know, weekend warriors are out there with, with phones, but there's not reception on a lot of that course. Mm-hmm. So, you know, phone may not be your saving grace either. So we're talking about wet terrain and you might not go out and say attack differently. Like I'm going to go hard off the start because such and such, you know, but obviously equipment preservation is, is hugely important as you're demonstrating, you know, looking back, was there a strategy or something that you could have employed, you know, like ride through puddles to wash off my derailleur? What, what can the riders do to prevent that from happening to them? Or obviously you don't know because <laughs> when, yeah, when Keel ran his failed marathon, it was dry. That's true. Very dry. Yep. It was, there was no barrier to entry. Mostly his fault. But yeah, when it's when it's colder, it's nice in a lot of ways because water becomes less of an issue. So you can sort of fudge things a little bit. Uh, you can get away with a little less. I think when it's hot, it's generally better to just err on the side of caution when it comes to water. So you just you just bring as much as you can a lot of times. Yep. But when it's colder, you can you can sort of do the math and okay, I, I need about this much. Let's realistically think about this. I'll probably drink about half of that. So let's bring, you know, three quarters of what what I might normally bring. You do need to factor in clothes and clothes kind of come on and off, depending on obviously what's going on out there, if it's raining on and off or if it's super cold over the top of a climb or something like that. So I think that bags kind of come into the fray a little bit more when it's cold. Like when I'm training in the winter up here, I bring bags like all the time, but I'd end up using them a lot in colder gravel races. But as far as moisture management goes, and we're talking about mud and stuff, yeah, really depends on the type of mud. 
you know, some mud's straight on and off. And all you really have to do is think about moving your chain more frequently. Chain usually tells you when it needs lube, but if it's real sticky, yeah, there's not a lot you can do to, to get that mud off other than pack a paint scraper. Yeah, sure. Yep. You know, and in regard to that mud, right, we're talking maybe the each coast has a little bit more organic soil that, you know, is probably the mud that's falling off, like you're talking about, Alex. And I know here in Colorado, I'm sure, you know, in Kansas or whatever, we're getting a little bit more clay in the soil, right? And that's the stuff that's like, it's literally like peanut butter if you've never experienced it. Yeah. It's shockingly difficult to get off the bike. It's awful stuff. It really is. And with that, it's like... it. When it's really sticky and nasty like that, I, I think it's it's generally better to you know, try and clean it off more often than you think you need to. So you avoid a situation where you're you know shearing off a rear derailleur or pedaling along at an extra 150 watts just trying to move forward because your bike is so clogged up. It can be a little counterintuitive because it's you know, you think, oh mud, I need I need a bigger, chunkier tire, but you know, sometimes you actually need you're better off with a smaller tire with better mud clearance. That way you're just not as plugged up all the time. Hey listeners, our online membership offers even more great content on gravel racing. Become a Fast Talk Labs library member for just $5 a month and you'll get full access to our training library, which includes a gravel-specific workout, a gravel data analysis workshop, a beginner's guide to ultracycling, and our guide to bikepacking gear. Join today at FastTalkLabs.com. So let's shift gears here a little bit and kind of dive into the strategy of gravel racing. So... We've already established that not all gravel races are made the same. They can be very different. So you're going to have different equipment choices. That's certainly going to affect your strategy. But let's talk about some of the elements that are a little more common. And also, we're really talking to to people who are actually trying to race the event versus this is just an experience to finish. And why don't we start with the start? There's a lot of people in the race. What is your approach? Is this like a cross race where you need to be off the gun super hard and, and get that position? Or since this could be a seven-hour race, does it not really matter as much? How do you approach the start? You know, it really depends on what's coming directly after the start. You know, you're not going to have, uh, well, you might have a situation where you're, you're racing into single track or something like that. But generally, when you look at the course, you, you know, you want to look at like sort of what the pinch points are. And if there's any sort of pinch point early, then the start becomes important. You know, for something like Belgian Waffle Ride, there's a single track section early on. I want to say, I mean, it's probably like 20 minutes into the race. And if you come into that section in 50th wheel, your day is effectively done. You're not going to probably not going to see the front group. But, you know, if it's a bit of a procession, then the start is certainly less important. The start, you want to think of it as where's the pinch point? You know, where's the early pinch point? And if that comes 50 miles into the race, well, then that's going to be your new start. Yeah, like Mid-South, for example, it was, I think, 20-something miles in. There was a section that was really muddy and didn't have a lot of lines. And so everyone knew that was kind of the first point to be at the front. I'm personally kind of shocked at how motivated and, and aggressive the early stages of these races can be, given that they're seven plus hours long. But I'll also admit, and maybe this isn't true for you, Alex, despite the fact that that sort of battle for position early on is, is something that we should be 
well adapted for given our backgrounds. It's it's also something I've sort of lost the appetite for, you know, like going to gravel for me from road. Part of that was about getting away from that sort of battle for every inch. And it, it was more about personal experience. And so although, you know, you can get wrapped up in the moment, for me, the, the gravel racing, kind of the highlights generally don't land around those those battles. Before the start even starts, are you guys, are you on the trainer? Are you warming up or are you just sort of rolling up to the line and, and letting the early terrain kind of get your legs up to temperature? Oh God, if that starts, man, I'm out. <laughs> uh, there's our answer. <laughs> yeah. My, my thought is, is, you know, if you're looking like something like Unbound, you know, you have 10 hours to warm up for that whole thing. No, no, there's no warm up going on there. But, you know, if you'd asked 10 years ago in the pro Peloton, everyone would have laughed too. Yeah, I I think this is a little different though. I mean, who's, is it worth it to wake up at two o'clock in the morning to eat some some food and then digest and then get on the rollers at 5.15 in the morning for a 6 a.m. start? It's like, come on, you know? Yeah, I can see Pete doing that. Yeah, Pete's probably doing that. (laughs) I think that comes back though to what you were talking about, about the pinch point. If there is a pinch point right off the start and you need to be in the right position, you might want to think about just having the legs a little bit ready. If the start isn't that critical, then you're right. You're going to get your warm up in the race. I think that in general, you're better off using your time just standing on the start line in a good position, you know, lining up early, as they would say, versus, you know, spending that time warming up somewhere else and then getting to the start five minutes before and standing in 197th place or something. I mean, on a day when you're going to expend 7,000 plus calories, is it worth an extra 300 calories to be warm at the start? You know, like it becomes a battle of just maintaining and an extra 20 minutes before the race is an extra 20 minutes at the end you don't have. So let's shift to now you're in the race, you're in a pack. You said there is a peloton that you're often riding in a group, but it's much slower than road racing. Does that impact the strategy? Are you still using a lot of the same tactics? Are you attacking or is it more like a, a breakaway where you're working together? There's, there's no dep- rules, right? <laughs> <laughs> depends well, on the rider. It depends on the rider, depends on the race. How do you two approach it? Well, I think in general, gravel seems to be more attrition than road, you know, so it is sort of similar to a breakaway in that, you know, towards the end, yeah, there's, there's going to be some, some riders that hit out in search of the victory, but for the most part, it's, it's riders coming off the back slowly, you know, it slowly whittles down. Riders have mechanicals, they run out of gas, they have bad moments, they don't have water, whatever. They slowly just sort of filter off the back. And then towards the end, you have five to 10 to two riders that, you know, are attacking them each other and keels holding on to the back of that for dear life and then sprints out sprints everybody. In an ideal world. Or running with his bike trying to keep up. Yeah. Yeah, it could go many directions for Keel. <laughs> it has gone many directions for Keel. I, I think Alex is right though. The race almost happens sort of like backwards. It's a filtering down of that that front group that occurs rather than riders sort of taking off from it until that very very end. I think a large part of the reason why that happens is because of sort of the way the Peloton is shaped. You know, if you think of like racing a criterium, people who've done like hard criteriums, like, you know what that's like, you're, you're in one line and you're just, you're just whipping around the, the course. And the further you are back in that line, the harder it is out of every sprint. 
in gravel racing, you're sort of in one to two lines most of the day, just because of the way the roads are. There's only a certain number of like good lines on the road, on the course. And so you just, it's kind of strung out, so to say all day. And so you get this elastic effect the further you are back in the group. And so it's sort of like racing a slow motion criterium for most of the day. So the further, further you are back, the more, you know, accelerations and efforts you need to make. And I think that's why you see guys just sort of dropping off the back. There's also an expectation that once you're inside that group, you know, whatever size it may be, that, that you are contributing because the group itself, you know, it only maintains the momentum if people are, are rolling through. And, and so the, the moment, you know, half the folks in that group start sitting on, you lose momentum. And it's not like road racing where you can say, well, I'm sitting on because my teammates up the road, the breakaway, or, you know, my sprinter is off the back with a mechanical and I'm, I'm waiting for him to catch up. It's more of a primarily individuals. And so everyone has sort of a, a responsibility once they're in a group that's rolling to contribute. But knowing that it's mostly raced off the back, are you considering that when you're in the group? Are you sizing up your, your competition and trying to figure out how to get them to waste more energy to wear themselves down so that they, they do pop off the back? Or are you just focusing on racing your best race, conserving your energy so you can make it to the end? They seem eager to do it on their own. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for myself personally, and I, I think I probably speak for Keel as well. And all the rest of the washed up pros. Well, I mean, like with where we're at fitness-wise and skills-wise, we don't want to be on the front any more than we have to. But that said, we don't want to be behind the guys who don't know how to ride bikes very well when it gets technical. So it's this sort of balancing act throughout the race where you're trying to hang back and conserve energy as much as you can. And then, you know, making small moves to get in front of, you know, less technically inclined riders at certain pinch points. And then hoping that, you know, that conserves enough energy throughout the day to where you can start making big moves towards the end. Right. Because there is such a range of skill levels and, and ability levels, even within that, that quote unquote fast front group. Right. There might be a triathlete in there who's just able to sustain 350 watts all day long you know, which is not, not my thing. There may be a rider who's incredibly savvy picking the right line. Maybe they have a mountain bike background and they're just really nimble on the bike. They're not going to hit those rocks and get flats. They're gonna always be at the right place, at the right time, but they don't have the same engine. And those different skill sets can all kind of come together in this, this one group. And even though they're different skill sets, everyone is in that race still when it gets down to the, you know, the pointy end. And so knowing which riders have what skills becomes important because you, you need to know which wheels you can trust to drag you back to the group if you get dropped or which wheels you can trust through the technical sections. And there is just this, this huge range of abilities. So it sounds like this is not a chess game like you see in road racing. This is much more a it's a long race. It's going to take a lot of energy. So you're doing a mix of saving energy, but also keeping it safe and knowing which wheel to be on when, when to be in front of guys who, who can't handle themselves as well. But you're not thinking multiple moves ahead and, and how to drop somebody or when to attack. It's, it's much more, how do I get to the finish as safely and wasting as little energy as possible? Yeah, I mean, it sounds lame when you put it like that, but yeah, that's pretty much <laughs> that's exactly less happening. heroic. 
Maybe if we were less tired yeah. during the race, we'd yeah. have like the brain capacity to start thinking about strategy three steps no, ahead. I, I, I do think that if you look at something like Perry Roubaix, which I, I think a lot of people compare, you know, Roubaix to, uh, you know, gravel racing and you have these, these big attacks and big moves through like the Forest to Arnberg and stuff where you can, you know, really split the group up and make a big move. Cobbles are relatively uniform relative to some of the stuff that we see in gravel. And I know I'm going to get like totally chewed up on that by some of my, my fellow pros, but they are, you know, I, I mean, I say that and like the cobbles in Roubaix are just like, they're, they're gnarly. I mean, there's potholes all over the place and they're, they suck, but in gravel, certainly for something like Unbound in general, like we have less bike than we need for a lot of the technical sections. So we're sort of out there underbiking. So equipment preservation is pretty key, actually. So the idea of, you know, really putting people under pressure through a, you know, technical gravel section, a lot of times ends up biting the person trying to do that, you know, biting them in the face because they end up, you know, flatten themselves out or, or tanking it because they're on a bike that probably undergunned for the course. So a lot of it just comes down to sort of self-preservation throughout the day, keeping your bike in one piece, keeping yourself in one piece, staying hydrated and, you know, just trying to conserve energy. And then the real race doesn't really happen until the end. And that's where the more sort of road tactics come into play. That's where you're really sizing people up, making a strategy. But, you know, before that, you know, you, you probably have 90 miles at least, and maybe, maybe 170 miles or so of just trying to get through it where the real sort of tactical stuff happens. So let's go to that point in the race. You're six hours in, you're in that group of five to 10 riders who, who have survived in the front. Now what's your tactics? What's the, the strategy? I mean, that it depends on the rider, depends on the race. For Keel and myself, you know, we both want to get to the finish line with as few people as possible. And we want to get to the finish line with them. <laughs> uh, if that makes any sense. You know, I think both of us are, you know, relatively confident in our sprints. Things obviously change at the end of a long race. You know, if I were to go out and like off the couch sprint Ian Boswell and Peter Stetna, like I'd probably beat him. If it was a 200 meter sprint, I'd probably beat him by like 170 meters. Um, <laughs> but... That's that a modest familiar. estimation there. <laughs> yeah. But then at the end of the long, you know, long race, like steamboat gravel, I had to work for that. <laughs> we're, we're there riding you know? zone two the entire time. And Alex has been at threshold for four hours. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in that race in particular, I had to attack just to end up getting to the finish line with them. Like I went away on the flat to get a gap before the, the big climb because I knew they would just smoke me on the climb, which, you know, that was definitely getting towards road tactic territory. Yeah, I got to say, the this is completely off topic, but the worst race of my life ever was Canadian Nationals 2010. I ended up in a breakaway with Pinner and Dominic Roland. So like two of Canada's best sprinters. This was not a steady breakaway. This was just attack after attack where they would just keep dropping me and then I would have to time trial back up to them, try to hold their wheel for five seconds before they attacked again. And we did that for like 20 miles. Sounds about right. <laughs> for those of us with no sprint who just like to go steady pace, it's, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why they were attacking you, you know? They weren't attacking me. They were attacking each other. Apparently they had ah. some sort of beef 
and they were completely after one. And I ended up beating both of them because they were so watching one another. They didn't notice when I just rode away from them. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the jam. You know, like knowing everyone's weakness, it can make a big difference in the end. Yeah. But so let's continue with the, that group. So it's like a road race. You're getting into the finish. You're just attacking or... Or hanging on for dear life. Either or. Does a more sophisticated strategy come in here or is it really just who's got the most left in the tank? I mean, there's, of course, there's strategy there. Who has the most in the tank is definitely a huge part of that. <laughs> Riders that, that are fitter and have more in the tank, they're going to have you know more room for error when it comes to making moves. They have more moves to make and such. I think, I don't know, it's it's strange with gravel at the moment because right now, most of the best riders were not great tactical riders. I, I don't know if that, that's a nice way to put it or a mean way to put it. They were all just stronger than us, we put it that way. Well, they're they're just strong riders. You know, Ian Boswell was a super strong racer, uh, you know, hell of a climber, huge engine. Stetna was the same. Colin Strickland's a bit of an, an outlier there in that he was really good red hook racer. But even I think his knowledge base when it comes to just that sort of those final moment end of race tactics still relatively limited you look at the way he won most of his red hooks he was solo you know he went away early and he just stayed away so there, there's not a ton of riders that have that sort of kg background you know had to win by basically just being crafty or lucky so with that it definitely changes the tactics of how things play out towards the end. I think this is all going to change in the relatively near future. I mean, we see a lot of riders currently coming in from Holland. And then if we're talking professional level racers, of course, then we're going to see more and more Europeans with that. You're going to see riders with stronger racing background. And when I say racing, I mean, not just towing, lining up to bike races. I mean, you know, the, the actual art and craft of, of racing. So it's it's all in flux at the moment. It's gonna it's gonna change quite a bit, I think. And as we're seeing more and more talent showing up at these races, for example, last weekend, I think less than half of the front group was American at Gravel Locos. Hmm. Sort of shocking, you know. Heiko, Texas is a long way from where I live. Uh, you know, imagine if you're coming across the pond to get there. But that's that's the appeal of these races. It's drawing drawing folks in, and as the the sort of Point the end of the race is is made up of more and more people who are are you know fractions of a percent away from one another in terms of you know their engine size. That front group will be bigger and stay together longer and longer into the race, and it will start to be we'll see more road racing like tactics in the finals of these races, which, as Alex pointed out, you know probably plays into our strengths. But the downside of that too is that it will be a bigger and bigger fight to be in that that front group in the middle parts of the race. To take this in a, a slightly different direction, you know, it sounds like obviously the engine is hugely important in determining the finish. Do bike handling skills ever really come into play or do you just need to have a minimum amount that you're able to stay with the group? You know, is the best bike handler in the world have an advantage or is that really not factoring into gravel? I had hoped it would play a bigger role, honestly. I don't think it's irrelevant at all. I, I, but I do think that it's it's not generally determining the outcome of these races. There are key moments where where it maybe matters. Uh, you might save yourself a flat, you know, if you don't make that mistake. But bike handling is not the determining factor. 
Yeah, you got to think at least at the front of the field, everybody there is pretty experienced. You know, even the worst bike handlers are probably pretty good bike handlers, you know, and uh, maybe further back in the field, you know, maybe at some point it starts to make a difference. But I can see at the front, the pointy end uh, that it doesn't factor in too much. I think yeah. the bigger factor over just like pure bike handling ability is like knowing what your ability is. You have riders that, you know, don't, they think they're better bike handler than they actually are. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm looking at keel right now. I don't know. Um, (laughs) and you know, they, they, they go in too hot to certain sections or they, you know, they want to put pressure on other riders and then they end up flatting out. I mean, I I can't laugh at keel too much because I, that's exactly what I did to myself last year at Belgium waffle. It's all good. Keel's got a really good looking hat. It's trying to play to our strengths, right? Like I, I think Alex is absolutely right that we're under biked. But if you know that handling is is maybe some something you might have an advantage on in the people around you in the race at that particular moment, your inclination is to push it to get an advantage because I'm not going to get it on the climb. So you push it into that that sector, and it generally ends up costing you more than than it gains you. Also, you know when you have a turn every what ten miles, you know you can rip into a turn on a gravel turn. I might get three bike lengths. So what? Where where are you going to go? Like there's still 20, 30, 40, 50 miles left to race. And the next corner is not for, you know, another 10 miles. It's not the same as when a you know road race enters a downtown circuit and, and there's seven turns within one mile. And each time you sort of accelerate through those turns and get a little bit of a gap, it, it starts to take energy out of the riders behind you. It's definitely not as much of an advantage to push the limits in those, those moments than I thought it would be. Yeah, I kind of, you know, when I was Belgian Waffle Ride, which is one of the last big events, so that's why the one I keep bringing up, you know, I, I use my bike handling skills actually to underbike, you know, compared to people around me. I was on uh, tubeless 28C tires. I had some pretty deep aero wheels because I knew that my weakness was going to be like on the climbs, on the roads, just keeping up with people that had more power than me. And then I could easily hang in the group on the off-road sections, even though I was running road tires. I wasn't trying to push it. I was just trying to be comfortable and stay with the people so that when we got back on the road, back to my weakness, you know, that I was then able to keep up pretty well there. Hey coaches, we have a new guide for you at fasttalklabs.com called How to Grow Your Coaching Business. In this free downloadable playbook, Coach Philip Hatzis explores how coaches like you can grow profits, create opportunities, and reach your growth goals, no matter how big or small. Visit fasttalklabs.com now to get this free download. So there is one final question I want to ask you guys, which is, let's talk to the person who's listening right now who wants to get into gravel racing and they actually want to go and and race the event, but they're pretty new to this. What suggestions do you have for them? Invest in tires. (laughs) Uh, We'll go back to the equipment thing here, I guess, first. But uh, I mean, the first thing is, is like, I mean, as pros, we get asked a lot, okay, what are you running? Okay, I'll, I'll buy, I'll buy two of those and I'll just try that. And my advice is always, if the pros are running 38s, like you should be on 42s. And if pros are on 32s, you should probably be on like 35s. And gearing wise, you always want a couple extra teeth in there relative to what the pros are running. Tactically, again, it's it's sort of knowing what your limits are. Know thyself. On. Yeah, knowing what your limits are early on and sort of trying to find the balance between going hard and staying with the group so you get that early advantage 
you know, you can finish an hour and a half ahead of your buddy. And also just knowing when it's time to kind of pull the parachute and ride your own race. You know, I think one of the best ways to sort of pace yourself early on in training, you get a get an idea of what your threshold is and you sort of pace yourself off of that a little bit. You know, if you're, if you're doing 15 watts above threshold for the first 20 minutes, first of all, that's a great effort uh, and you should probably, you know, change your threshold. But if you're overshooting it significantly, you're, you're, you're doing something wrong and you're setting yourself up for a long, hard day of riding by yourself out the back. But if you're you know, 20 watts below threshold, you're, you're probably in a good spot and you keep hanging on to that group as long as you can. I mean, really, the longer you can be with a group, any group, the better. My advice is going to come with a little bit more of a, a view through a macro lens, which is that for the, the people who are, are maybe intimidated to try their first event or, or want to get into it, but they're not quite sure how, the, the bar of entry is so much lower at these events than it is for a road race where you're sort of required to show up and, and decide what, you know, what category are you and, and, you know, do I know how to ride in a, in a quote unquote Peloton? And do I understand pack dynamics? And, and am I going to be able to handle my bike at those speeds? This is so much more of a, um, an arena where you can choose your, your own experience. And so, you know, like if your goal is just to finish the event and have a good time, you can make equipment choices and, and do the training that will get that outcome. If you're looking to have a quote unquote fast day and, and to, you know, be competitive, you know, the, there's different criteria for that. What you'll find at these events is it's a very inclusive community. We want new people to show up. We want people to share these experiences with. And so even if you don't have the experience, there are going to be people there at the event during the event who are going to, to offer assistance to, to help you along, to, to see you through, to, to make sure that you have a great first experience. And, you know, of course, you know, if you're going to do a 10 hour, hundred mile ride, you want to practice riding four or five, six hours before you go. But I don't think that you need to be training, you know, 20 hours a week to just be able to do these events. There are a lot of people that are coming to these events with limited experience and you're going to have that camaraderie. So that's, that's a great way to sum it up. We're going to finish up by offering suggestions to athletes new to gravel racing. But before we do, let's hear again from Jared and his thoughts on what a new athlete needs to do to prepare physiologically for an event like this. You want to be thinking about a gravel race. I mean, they're typically longer. I mean, I feel like gravel races are anywhere, anywhere between two hours plus all the way into, uh, you know, these 200 mile gravel races. So you'd really need to be thinking about how you handle your bike as, as you fatigue, how you um, feel, how your musculature and your physiology feels as you're taking on this, you know, bumpier terrain with these more rigid bikes, you know, and then even thinking about what you should be doing with tire pressure and such in order to, you know, not adversely affect your physiology. Those are things to think about every cyclist needs to be doing strength training, right? And then when you become into a gravel ride, I mean, that, that low back needs to be really, really developed. That neck needs to be strengthened and comfortable and it needs to be loose and have good flexibility and always be healthy, right? We need to have good comfort in our shoulders and strength there. So it's just in general strength training, stability training, functional strength. You have to be incorporating these things and be, you know, be thinking about that. I feel like a uh, a strength training that could be done after a long ride could be highly beneficial and helping you tune into, you know, keeping your body healthy while you're out there even riding longer and harder in these races. I really try to work hard with my athletes on the idea of 
you know, we get out for these long rides, right? And I want them to always feel like they have the ability to sort of hit that sweet spot, hit that race intensity that they might be using in that race towards the end. You know, go, they do a four-hour ride. They're going to do the last 30, 40 minutes strong, right? In order to do that, they need to actually really be thinking about good nutrition, good pacing in that long ride so they can hit that last 30 or even 60-minute piece that I'm asking them to at that race pace. That's definitely, you know, one of the strategies that I use. Okay, well, Rob, are we ready for take-homes? Yeah, I think we're ready for take-homes. So the way this works is we each get one minute to basically sum up what you think is the most salient point of this episode or, or the one thing that you really want our listeners to take away from the show. So who would like to go first? All right, I'm up. The takeaways. Buy a sauna hat, listen to Alex's coaching advice, hydrate in the heat, try an event if you haven't, and we look forward to seeing you out there. Well, I will go next, Alex. We're going to give you the last word on this one. So my suggestion as somebody who is probably built for gravel racing and never done this is it does seem like racing is changing. We aren't seeing as much road racing, as much stage racing as we used to see. You're seeing more gravel races, more Grand Fondos. This is a really, from everybody I've spoken to, a really fun exciting way to race and if you haven't given it a try you should and and with that i'm planning on giving it a try this summer rob what's your take home yeah you know every gravel race or gravel event depending on how you want to look at it is different so i think that anyone getting into this at the beginner level you know do so conservatively be a little conservative with your equipment be a little conservative with your pacing be a little conservative with your food and your water go out there and learn and experience things and as you do that then you can start to make the decisions, you know, that maybe you're going to increase your performance. But uh, if you're jumping into an event for the first time and you're really trying to absolutely maximize aero and rolling resistance and everything else, you're probably going to be on the edge of failure. And that is a common occurrence in gravel. So get out there, try it, do it, experience it, have fun while you're doing it and uh, worry about the pointy end uh, once you have a little bit more, a little more time under your belt. And Alex, last word is yours. I think that Gravel is everywhere in the U.S. right now. So there's kind of no reason not to try, not to get out there and, you know, participate in the local event. The barrier to entry is relatively low. It's a ton of fun, speaking personally here. But before you go, like a couple small points, like know the course, at least get an idea of what you're in for. You know, big, chunky gravel, smooth, fast gravel, lots of climbs, pan flat. Like, like what is it? Where are the aid stations? How are you going to take care of yourself out there? Make sure you have enough water, enough food. If you do bring enough water, enough food, try and remember to drink it. Like don't drink and eat it. Don't get so wrapped up in the race that you uh, completely space to eat and drink everything you brought. I have seen that happen before. And just have fun with it. Like we said, uh, it's, it's the pointy end is the pointy end. That's where the serious stuff happens. Sometimes it's fun to be up there, but a lot of times it's, it's fun to just sort of get through these things, have your own adventure, and I can promise you that if you get through some of these bigger events, it is going to be an adventure worth talking about. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate having you on the show. Thanks yeah. for time. Thanks for having us. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. 
Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For the always alternative Alex Howes, Keel, bike racing should contain running Reinen, and Trevor, maybe this gravel thing isn't a fad after all, Connor, I'm Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening.